So I want you to do a little exercise with me real quick. If you could all stand for me, please, if you're able. All right. And so I want you to put your hand up in the air. Put your hand up in here. Put your pinky down, just your pinky. I can't do it either. So put your pinky and your ring finger down, your middle finger, your thumb, and what's left? Your, your this little lot of mine. That's good. That's good. <laughs> this, so this is your index finger. Some people call it your pointer finger, right? So keep it up for just a moment. I know we're Baptists and this is uncomfortable. So um, <laughs> keep it up for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All right? So you can put your hands down. Y'all can have a seat. Have a seat. So now you've done it once, so it's easier to do it again, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So when, so over the last two years, um, I've been involved in uh, the, the Prayers for Student program. I know a number of, of you here have been involved in that as well. And for those of you who don't know what it's about, it's a program where we get a little picture of a high school student at Cabot, their name, and we have the opportunity to pray for them throughout the year. So last year, uh, I had the opportunity to pray for a young man named Nicholas, um, and then this year, I've had the opportunity to pray for a young man named Hayden. So this was honestly a little weird for me at first, not weird because it was weird to pray for someone, but I didn't know this person. I'd never met them. All I had was a picture. I had their name. And I didn't know if they had a good time at school, if they had a family, if they had a mom and dad at home like I did growing up. I don't know if their grandmother just submitted their name because she was worried about them. I didn't know what kind of life that this person had. And so I found it kind of difficult to pray for them because um, I didn't know exactly what to pray about. So I kind of just started praying general things like a prayer, you know, prayer for protection, prayer that they would learn, uh, prayer that they'd have a good day, they'd have friends, good relationships, that kind of thing. And so the first year that I prayed for Nicholas, I kind of prayed those generic things, kind of just this umbrella of things uh, about Nicholas. So the next year when I got Hayden's name, I just really felt like that I needed to pray more specifically for this young man. And I didn't exactly know how. Again, I didn't know him. I didn't know him. So as I was praying one day, and let me stop before I go any further into the story. Romans 8, 26 through 27 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for saints according to the will of God. So I feel like, I really believe that the Lord kind of placed this burden, placed this thought, uh, the, these words in my mind as I began to, uh, to pray for Hayden. And subsequently, I think it kind of led, uh, led to what I'm, I'm talking to you guys about today. I began to pray that God would place people in Hayden's life, in his family's life, that would point him to Christ. Well, there's the thing. I, I don't know if Hayden knows Jesus or not. Like I said, I've never met him. I don't know he's, if he's ever stepped foot in a church or if he grew up cutting his teeth on the back of pews like, like I did. So I don't know anything about him. 
Um, but here's what I do know. When someone points you to Christ, one of two things happen. You're going to be encouraged or you're going to be introduced. So if he already knows Jesus, hallelujah. That's great, right? This person can remind him of the awesomeness that he has in his creator and God. If he doesn't know Jesus, then this person can walk him up to the Savior and say, Hayden, this is Jesus. He already knows you, but you don't know him. I'd like to introduce you to the one that loves you enough to send his son to die for you. So tonight, I want to run through a number of ways where we can point others to Christ. So bear with me. There are a lot of points in this sermon. So Mark, you probably got that. <laughs> All right, the point of our words, number one. Titus 2, 7 through 10, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may, so, excuse me, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. As we use our words to point others to Christ, our speech should be presented in such a way that no one even has an opportunity to say something evil about us. We shouldn't be combative. We shouldn't be argumentative. Our words should complement the doctrine of Christ. So when someone is adorned with something, typically they're trying to kind of draw attention to themselves, right? So if our words and everything that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, our words should draw attention to Christ, positive attention that is, we must be responsible with our words. James 3, 5 through 10 says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My, brother, my brothers, this, this thing ought not to be so. One of the things that one of the speakers at our conference that we went to this weekend, is, he reminded us that that person that you're speaking against, that you're treating unfairly, that you're treating poorly, that person was made in the image of God. So we should remember the words that we're using, that whatever person we come into talk, contact with, because just like us, they're made in the image of their creator. He goes on to say in James 4, 11 through 12, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? 
Instead of using words of judgment, we should use words to point others to Christ. Sometimes we can even use their words to point them to Christ, just as Paul did. So this is a little bit lengthy reading, but bear with me. I want to I kind of set up this story here um, that Paul is going through when he's speaking to the men of Athens. So Acts 17, 22 through 31 says, So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples and made by man, nor is he served, for human, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries in their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness for a man, by a man whom has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. <laughs> did you see what Paul did here? He didn't run in yelling and screaming that's a false God, that's a false God, that's a false God, you are in big trouble. That's not how he approached the people of Athens. Earlier in the chapter, he said that he was grieved in his spirit when he saw the amount of idols that the city of Athens had. So he was legitimately upset when he came in to the city, but he did not take his anxiety out on the people of Athens. Instead... He took their own words, the inscription to the unknown God, and pointed them to Jesus. He also used the words of their own poets and pointed them back to Jesus. He said, look, this unknown God that you're worshiping, that you don't know, let me introduce him to you because he is the real deal. Next, the point of our actions this is one of my favorite passages uh, in, the, in the Bible. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I don't think, I believe that everything in the Bible is intentional. I think the, when, I believe when God wrote these words, every little syllable 
was for a reason. And one of the reasons I love this passage is, besides the fact that it's straight from Jesus' lips, uh, he uses simple imagery to get his point across here. Everyone's familiar with salt and light. Then and now, we're all familiar with what it does. Now, in regard to the salt, this part I found particularly interesting. It's a flavor enhancer and a preservative. Those were kind of the two main things that it was used for. We still use it for that here. But those are the two main things it was used for back in Roman time. But one of the things that some Roman soldiers were paid with, they had, they had a stipend that was used specifically for salt. Because salt was such a, a precious commodity then. It was used for so many different things. That's where we get our term, worth your salt. That's where we get the word salary. They were paid a salarium um, at the time. That's where kind of the history of that comes from. But essentially, for the Roman soldiers, salt became a currency, right? So does it, you, does it even have a dollar, like a bill of any a bill? Let me, see, let me see your bill for just one second. So this, this bill, right? So this paper, in and of itself, is worth how much would you say? Probably, probably not much, right? It's, it's just a piece of green paper. What makes this important? What makes this worth something? Right? So it's what's backing it, right? So the U.S. government, the, the U.S. Treasury backs this bill. Can I have? No. <laughs> so what makes that little green piece of paper worth something is the backing of the U.S. Treasury, right? What made this salary, this salt worth something is what it meant to these soldiers' families, right? It was used as currency. We're not really that special. But what makes us worth something is who's backing us. The, the, the savior of this earth our Savior, our God, who's backing us, that's what makes us worth something. We should be bearing the image of our Creator, just like that bill bears the image of the U.S. government. All right, does that make sense? So that's, that's one of the things that just really kind of hit me when, uh, when I was studying that particular passage, that we should be showing the image of our Creator. So such great imagery in this, uh, in this section. So part... Uh, next up is our point on our attitude, Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So I love to complain. Who loves to complain? Right, a lot of us, be honest, we all love to complain, right? It feels good, you just get your frustration out, you get to tell the world how irritated with things you are and how unfair things are. Everyone loves to do it, right? So that's where the problem lies. Everyone loves to complain, the world loves to complain, but we are called to be different in this world. We have a God that loves us so much that he sent his only son to suffer an awful death to, pay, death to pay our sins. He conquered death so we could come to live with him forever. We are just here serving our master until we get to go home. We are foreigners in this land. 
So what do we really have to complain about? If we're complaining and bellyaching and moaning about the fleeting things of this world, how are we any different than anyone else? How are we having our mind set on heavenly things and not earthly things? Our hope and trust is not in this world, and we ought to be clear to others that we are, have a patient and loving attitude in the midst of this messed up world. Another place that our attitude comes into play is when we're dealing with authority. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 1 Peter 2 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You may not have voted for or agree with the elected official in question, but you should respect them and the office that God has placed them in. Pray for them. You can disagree with their policies and their procedures and the things that they do, but you shouldn't go around bashing them or the office they hold because God put them in that office. This attitude does anything but point others to Christ. But what about a more direct authority like, say, your boss? Have you ever worked for someone who you can hardly stand to be around? They're maybe mean, they may be kind of vindictive, they're just really tough to work for. Maybe they treat you unfairly, maybe they're demeaning. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 19 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Maybe that hard-nosed, unjust, obnoxious boss just really needs Jesus, right? Maybe they're going through a hard time at home and they're taking it out on you. You think they're going to listen to you when you talk about the peace and contentment that you have in Jesus if all you're doing is butting heads with them all day. Of course not. Our attitude should reflect the hope that we have within us. Our next one is the point of our priorities. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, as these two commandments depend, depend all the law and the prophets. So we live really busy lives, right? Sometimes we wonder, what should my priority list look like? What should be up here? What should be kind of in the middle, down at the bottom? What would the Lord have me to do? If you took your to-do list and handed it to Jesus and said, can you get this in order for me? I just don't know which ones were the most important. What do you think he would say? He would say exactly what he said here. God, 
others, everything else. This is your priority list, straight from the mouth of God. You wonder how you should plan your weekend? God, others, everything else. You wonder how you should plan your family? God, others, everything else. You wonder how you should plan your career, your business? God, others, everything else. Anything that you do in this life, your priority should fall into God, others, everything else. It's very clear here. Our priorities in every facet of our life should point straight up to God being at the very top of our priority list. Now, Luke 14, it says, Now crowds, the great crowds accompanied him and turned and said to him, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So as a kid, this passage really kind of confused me. Why is the Bible telling me to hate my mom and my dad? And if I have a wife, why should I hate them and hate my kids? This was really confusing as a kid. So, but what's important to understand here is this word that's used for hate is not the hate that we're used to, the just utter disdain and just loathing and just despising someone. That's not the hate that it's talking about here. Because that is completely contrary to what the Bible tells us about our family, of course. The Greek word here translated hatred is literally to love less. It is a matter of priority. What Jesus is saying here is not to love your family more than him. Not to love Jesus less than your family. If you love your family more, or anything for that matter more than Jesus, and you love Jesus less than, insert whatever, then your priorities are mixed up. You have moved others to the top of the list. You simply cannot follow Christ if he isn't at the top of your priority list. Luke 5, 59 and 60 says, To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury your own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Same thing here. Jesus isn't being insensitive. He's impressing upon this man the importance of making his walk with Christ number one priority. Top of his list. list. Let the spiritually dead deal with this issue. It is more important that you proclaim the kingdom of God to others so as to might save their life and stop worrying about these earthly rituals and traditions and point others to Christ, the giver of life. Next, we'll look at the point of our service. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means... I might save one. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. This one is challenging. 
This one involves discomfort. This one involves awkwardness. This one involves getting over ourselves. Paul became all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. Did this mean he compromised what was right in the sight of the Lord? Absolutely not. Did this mean he stepped outside of his comfort zone? Absolutely. Paul was a devout Jew, and he grew up in the law, knew all pieces of it, and followed it. So for him to step outside of that to reach someone for the gospel had to be very uncomfortable for him. But Paul regarded the gospel as more important than his comfort, and so should we. Paul also regarded the gospel as more important than his traditions, and so should we. Paul took on a true servant's, servant's heart to point others of all backgrounds to Christ. Lastly is the point of our preparation. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Hallelujah. It's okay. You can say that too. Um, we're excited. We should be excited for Jesus to come back. Our hope is not here. Our hope is in an eternal home away from the perils of this world. James 5, 7, and 8 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James says to establish your hearts, not in the ways of the world, but in the ways of the kingdom. Be solid, strong, bold in your walk. The word establish here actually literally means to strengthen, make firm, to render constant, to confirm in one's mind. We are to be deeply rooted in Christ as we wait for his second coming. How many of you have locks on your home? Locks on your car? Locks on your phone, right? How many of you, your home is locked right now? How many of your cars in this parking lot out here are locked right now? I have an alarm system at my house. It's on right now. When I go to bed at night, I turn it on. It stays on all night. Why do I do that? I'm expecting a thief. I'm expecting a robber. So are you. Otherwise, we wouldn't lock our things up, right? So by, the action, by my actions, I am preparing for something that I believe to be inevitable. The same way for us and the coming of Jesus. We should be acting as if we really believe that he's going to come. We believe that, right? We believe that our Savior is coming back. We should be acting as if we are expecting his coming. 2 Peter 3, 8-13 says... But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works and that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We ought to live our lives as if the Lord is coming back at any moment, just like we lock our doors, just like we prepare for a thief that could come at any moment. We should be prepared for the Lord to come back. Not in the way we do with robbers where we're acting in fear and insecurity, but we should have a deep longing for physically reuniting with our Creator. A new body, a new home, an eternal existence with our one true God. Now as I began praying this prayer for Hayden, and I was praying, Lord, please place people in Hayden's life that would point him to you. I got to thinking, am I one of those people? If someone else was praying and asking, could you place this person in another's life so they would point them to Jesus, would God use me as one of those people? I hope and pray that we would be one of those people that God would use to point others to Christ. So I ask tonight of you and of myself, what's your point? Can the Lord use you to further his kingdom? Are you open to encouraging those who already know Jesus or introducing those that are lost and in a dying world to a Savior that dearly loves them. Maybe you're in need of a point. Come talk to me, and I can point you exactly where you need to go, and his name is Jesus. The one who can give you purpose, the one who can give you reason for being, he can give you a new life, a life eternal. Then when people ask you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, then you have point, right? As the musicians come forward, I'll pray. I just hope that myself, others, we will be open to, use, to letting the Lord use us in such a way that we would be able to lead others to Christ and encourage those that are already in Christ.